Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. I'm glad you tuned in to this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. The guest on this episode is Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences. And Mike and I talk about this new program that's just been announced from the FDA. It's a, a pilot program on accrediting test organizations. And the intent behind this is to potentially help streamline and improve the consistency from uh, test compliance with respect to FDA-recognized consensus standards. So some pros and some cons. And Mike and I talk about some of those on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, the founder, the VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight, Dr. Guru John Spear. And I have my friend, a familiar guest, a voice you've heard often on the Global Medical Device Podcast, Mike Drews. Mike is the president of Vascular Sciences and a regulatory expert that works with medical device companies and regulatory bodies like FDA and Health Canada, among others. Mike, good morning. Good morning, John. Well, you sent me a note the other day about something that we could chat about, and and I must say that it was intriguing to me. So uh, the topic is this new program that's you know, sponsored by the FDA where they're, they're looking to do some sort of accreditation with testing uh, firms and, and test organizations. So I thought we'd jump into that a little bit. So give me a little bit of background. What, what do you know about this program? So, John, what you're referring to is officially being called the Accreditation Scheme for Conformity Assessment, or the ASCA, ASCA. Mm -hmm. This was publicly announced just a few weeks ago, but we've had some internal conversations about it at FDA for some time. If all goes as planned, it's supposed to be implemented by 2020, yeah. so just a couple of years from now. And basically what it means is to set up, at the moment it's a pilot program, to set up this program to, uh, to certify or to accredit various testing labs and agencies such that when they do a particular test of a medical device as part of the regulatory clearance or approval process, then FDA will know that the test was done properly according to the accepted methodology, that the data was analyzed and so on, so that quite frankly, FDA can then just... Um, accept the results, so to speak, without really reviewing it uh, in more detail. Hmm. The idea, of course, the theory is that this will help streamline, that this will help expedite the workload of both the FDA and at the same time, make it a little easier for companies, medical device companies in this case, to kind of know what FDA expects. So there are similar programs to this in Europe and other places in the world. That's, uh, in a nutshell, what the idea is here. Yeah, I, there's a good article about this uh, from RAPS, and, and we'll be able to share that with, with the audience as well. But the way I understood it, this, this, really the scope of the program is for these uh, accrediting some test labs and 
specifically focused on FDA recognized consensus standards, which, you know, that, that list is pretty large and that, that seems like a, a big undertaking. It certainly can be, and I don't see, pragmatically speaking, that this is going to happen all at once. Obviously, this is going to be an evolutionary thing. Uh, But before we get into the details, I can't help but interject why is it, especially at this particular point in time, that FDA is announcing this. It's not that I'm saying that it's a bad idea. We'll talk about that in a moment. I think it does have some advantages both to the FDA as well as to to the industry. But let's also be honest here, it's a politics because FDA, let's put it this way, with the new administration in place and the new FDA commissioner who just came on board literally weeks ago, there's a lot of pressure to, to, to reduce the size of the agency, to reduce the, spun, the, the, the funding of the agency. And from a political perspective, not to be cynical, but one could easily see this as a play to minimize FDA's workload. That is, if a company has hired some other test lab to do a particular test and they're certified, then it really becomes nothing more than a checkbox, a tick box on the form. This particular test was done. Yes, it was done by an accredited third party. Yes, the the results were acceptable. Yes, move on to the next thing. So let's be honest, there is a bit of politics involved here as well. Yeah, well, that's an interesting note. I mean, it, I, I guess when I first read this, I... Um I didn't see or really think about that spirit in trying to reduce the level of government, so to speak, with respect to the FDA. It seems to me that this is going to actually potentially increase that. I mean, so how do you think that's, I mean, I know we're, we're not uh, clairvoyance per se, especially when it comes to regulatory bodies and what the FDA is doing. But I mean, I, I do appreciate the spirit in which that this, this the promise that this this program holds, but you know, at the same time, I'm, I'm a little uneasy about that. Well, like everything, John, I think there's good things and bad. With regard to the, to the political commentary that I mentioned a moment ago, it's not surprising that that, that was not ma- mentioned in the RAPS article or at least in any other uh, public sources that I've seen thus far. Because quite frankly, most people, especially in the medical world, they don't like to involve politics. In some cases, they don't even want to acknowledge that politics is part of our regulatory system. As a side note, I find it fascinating how so many people, they try to separate regulation from politics, which to me makes absolutely no sense, because where does the regulation come from? It comes from the politicians. That's not necessarily a bad thing or a good thing, but it is a fact. But anyway, back to the point of this particular program, I think overall there could be some advantages both to the FDA as well as to industry, but I see some challenges as well. For one is, well, let's put it this way. There are a lot of folks that view testing. And again, first of all, let's remember that medical device testing is a very broad term. It can include mechanical or benchtop testing, like, for example, uh, strength testing or fatigue testing, something like that. But it also can involve computational testing. It can involve animal testing. It can even involve clinical testing. So if this pilot program becomes acceptable, you know, will eventually it be expanded so that we can farm out, so to speak, our animal testing, even our clinical trial testing to third parties? It's an interesting question. This certainly takes us a step in that direction. Another thing to think about, and in my opinion, as an engineer, much more, it's one thing to talk about having somebody accredit the methodology and the data analysis, but who's going to be asking the question, are we doing the right tests? You know, so many times in my world, John, and I'm sure you've seen this happen as well, 
where a medical device company brings a device onto the market under, say, the 510K, they will just assume that they need to do all of the same tests for their particular medical device as the company that did the predicate before them. And I do not make that assumption because in some cases there are some tests that we need to do. In some cases there are some tests that we might not need to do. Maybe we need to do something else. Maybe it's not applicable. Maybe it's not even possible to do it. So I have a problem as an engineer when people approach testing methodologies as just sort of a tick box on a form. Did you do this test? Tick. Did you do that test? I'll share with you a quick example, and then I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, John. One of the cool things about my job is I get to walk into lots and lots of different medical device companies, and one of my favorite questions to ask people in R&D or manufacturing or what have you, when I see somebody doing a particular test, a benchtop test, for example, I'll ask them, why are they doing this test? And more often than not, they'll say, because FDA requires us to do that test. I say, okay, fine, fair enough, but if FDA did not require you to do it, would you do it? Absolutely not. It provides no useful or valuable information. On the other hand, I walk into the same medical device companies, and I see that they're not doing a particular test. And I, as a, bio, as a professional biomedical engineer, think they should be doing that test. And I ask them why they're not doing that. They'll say, because it's not required. So I have no problem having an accreditation system, a pilot program like this in place, but one of the questions that we need to always be asking ourselves, which we should not farm out on anybody, is are we doing the right test? John, what are your thoughts? Well, it's from being that, uh, sitting in that engineer seat, I, I can understand kind of both sides of that equation. I can understand, well, I should, you know, be... Uh, a prudent engineer and I should easily or, or definitely put my brilliant mind to work and all those years of education and experience to work and identify the, the types of testing and the types of standards that are applicable to my product. Sure, I get that. I mean, that that's, that's, makes a lot of sense from a philosophical standpoint. And then I can also see the side where uh, I'm a little conflicted. You know, I, I want my submission to get through as simply as and quickly as possible through the agency. So sometimes I may look at, well, what did the predicate product do and what testing did they apply? What standards did they apply? And that becomes my list, my checklist, so to speak, which is, uh, as you noted, for, for several reasons, not necessarily uh, the best practice. So I'm a little torn. And I think one of the things that seems to be driving some of this is is the the standards that that we have in the industry today they're not getting simpler they're getting more and more and more complex and you have to become an expert in each of these standards in order to even understand what they're asking for sometimes which is crazy you know so as an engineer, you know, I'm trying to be uh, an expert in this product or this technology that I'm developing. Now I also have to become an expert in, in all these crazy complex standards. And it seems like every few months there's a new version of this and a new version of that and a new standard for this and a new guidance for that. I mean, how in the world can one keep up? Well, that's a terrific question, John, and let me come back to that in just a moment with regard to, to the first part of your response in terms of taking the path of least resistance through the FDA or through Health Canada or EU or any regulatory authority. Listen, I, I hear 100% what you're saying. To quote a famous politician, I feel your pain. There are many times 
I have done a test or I've suggested to a company to, a do, to do a test, even though I, as a professional biomedical engineer, think it is totally unnecessary. Why? Because it's a test that we can do in a short period of time in a, in a little bit amount of money. And then it just simply becomes a tick box on the form, as opposed to having to go to the agency and saying, here's the test and here are the reasons why we're not going to do it. So one of the important lessons I've learned from my wife from being married, which I apply to my professional practice all the time, is you have to pick your battles. If there's a test that you don't think is necessary, but it is something that you can finish in a short period of time for a little bit of money, it might be better to just simply do it to sort of suck it up, so to speak, and uh, keep your political capital for a battle in the future worth fighting. On the other hand, a couple of years ago, I had a device, this was in a different country, where they were insisting on us doing some pretty sophisticated biocompatibility testing that was going to take probably about six months and cost, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And most importantly, as a professional biomedical engineer and an expert in biomaterials, I did not think that that was necessary. And this is a line where this is a, uh, a situation where we did draw a line in the sand and say, look, this is not necessary, even though other people have done it before for all of the following reasons. So you do have to pick your battles. But coming back to your second point, John, in terms of the complexity of testing methodologies, you're exactly right. In fact, one of the justifications for FDA bringing out this program is, you know, read the quote, many standards are highly complex and require substantial specialized knowledge to interpret and, and apply correctly. This is a challenge for manufacturers and FDA alike, unquote. This is, uh, as I said, directly as a, uh, from part of the announcement from FDA of this program. Well, with all due respect to my many friends in industry at F and at FDA, and this might sound a little blunt or a little harsh to some, but I would say if somebody doesn't understand a test, they have no business doing the test. You know, Einstein, very smart guy, Einstein said, if you can't explain something simply, you don't understand it well enough. So in my opinion, and again, this might sound a bit harsh to some people, but it's our job as engineers working in this industry to understand how to best test our devices in order to show that they're safe and effective, in order to show that they will do what we plan to put on the label and so on. So regardless of how simple or how complex it is, it's our job to, to understand that. And to your point about testing and guidance is changing and evolving quickly, well, that's a, probably a good thing because we don't want the uh, our testing methodologies to be stagnant. We want to continue to improve them. Is that a bit of a challenge for us to keep up? Perhaps, but that's part of the that that's part of our job, don't you think, John? Uh, well, I'll say yes, and I'll say no. Uh, yes, it <laughs> certainly is uh, our job to to keep up with state of the art. And I realize state of the art is is always evolving, so it is important for us to keep up with that. However, uh, uh, my opinion sometimes that these standards, when they're revised, it doesn't feel like they're necessarily evolving to keep up with state of the art. A good example, at least in my humble opinion, is the evolution of IEC six zero six zero one, the standard for electrical safety for medical devices. It seems to me that that particular standard over the past couple of editions has kind of gone the other way. It's created a lot of busy work and a lot of a lot of extra 
effort, you know, especially around the area of risk management. And I realized that that the people who write that standard, they've, they've got a, a dubious responsibility to try to make sure that they've incorporated ISO 14971 and best practices for risk management into that standard. But some of the practices that, that are now expected as part of that, you know, that whole testing process become, from many, many people I've heard specifically on that version of that standard is, is a little bit egregious and a little bit overly burdensome. So, you know, if in fact standards do evolve to keep up with state of the art, that's one thing. But if they're evolving to create more busy work, uh, that's a completely different thing. Well, John, you're completely preaching to the choir on that one. I take the same approach to testing and consensus standards as I do to regulation in general. And that is, if the testing or if the regulation makes sense, then by all means follow it. But if it doesn't make sense and we follow it anyway, is that a problem with the system or is that a problem with us? So if in a particular situation, and I spend a pretty fair amount of my professional time doing exactly this for companies, if in a particular situation the testing doesn't make sense or the testing is overly burdensome, as you just described, then we need to go to the agency, if it's here in the United States, to the FDA, for example, and I usually do this in the form of a pre-sub, and I say, here's what the testing suggests but in our particular case, it's not appropriate. I probably wouldn't say it's overly burdensome. I would, I would spin it a slightly different way. <laughs> but I would say it's not appropriate or it's not possible right. for the following reasons, and here's what we propose to do instead. And by the way, a lot of companies will do that in an actual submission, in a 510K, for example. While you're certainly allowed to do that, I would never do that because you might as well just put a red flag over your submission saying to the FDA, don't even waste your time reading this. Just kick it back to us right in our, right in our face because you're going to just about guarantee that your, that your submission is rejected. So I always take things like this to the agency in advance, as I said, usually in the form of a precept, but it can be done in other ways as well to make sure that everybody buys into that. Probably one of the things that bothers me the most about this particular announcement, John, as we start to wrap up our conversation, and again, this is right out of FDA's announcement of the program. It says, FDA will not review reports from accredited test labs except as part of a periodic quality audit or if the agency learns of new information relevant to a device's safety or effectiveness. Well, to me, we are really farming out a lot of the responsibility of the FDA here to a third party. And while philosophically that's not necessarily a bad thing, that's potentially problematic, it would seem to me, you know, because this is taking us, first of all, it's going to, it goes back to what I said earlier about politics. It really is going to reduce the workload of FDA, which means they can do more for less money, you know, so there's the politics again. But more importantly, we're putting a lot of trust, a lot of faith in these, you know, accredited third-party testing labs. You know, at the end of the day, we are talking about people's lives here. In some cases, we're talking about putting something in somebody's body for the rest of their life to save their life or something. So maybe what we do, and this is a suggestion we have not really discussed, at least not that I know of, at FDA, maybe for this particular FDA pilot program at the moment, 
we take a page from the third-party review program, and we limit it to low and perhaps moderate-risk medical devices. In other words, for testing that's going to go into a Class 1 or a Class 2 device, you might be able to use a program like this. But if you're working on a Class 3 device, uh, at least for the moment until we get a little bit of history on this, we exclude testing that would go into a a class three. Is that a concern to you, John? And if so, what do you think of my potential solution to that problem? Well, let me start with your potential solution first. I I like the idea because that really de-risks the process or the potential behind this program and and treats it as a true pilot. Let's start with those devices that can benefit the most. I mean, we're talking about a class three device that's going to go through PMA. I would want there to be a lot more control in place and a lot more scrutiny about what was done. So I, I like the idea of the class one and class two. The, as you talked about the, your point, the other thing that, that was coming to mind is one of the things that we're seeing actually now in the European community with respect to registrars and notified bodies. And I will pose the question. Uh, it's really you know, to be determined, I suppose. But one of the things that we've seen in that European model with registrars and notified bodies is once, just a few years ago, there were dozens and dozens and dozens of of organizations who were qualified to be notified bodies and registrars. And now what we're seeing is a huge contraction of, of the bodies that are uh, certified and accredited to perform those particular tasks. And I wonder if with this type of program that the FDA is posing, if if we'll see a, a similar sort of thing where there'll be a lot of labs that now want to become accredited to this program to the FDA in order to, you know, drive revenue and, and those sorts of things. I, I, I just, the control on this is, is something that is concerning to me, I guess. Well, that is definitely a concern to me as well, John. And here's another not-so-hypothetical situation. I have several companies that I'm working with right now where we have to do a variety of biocompatibility testing, and we have some very good biocompatibility labs doing the testing for us. But let's think about this for a second. As we put more and more responsibility in the hands of the testing lab, is that not the proverbial putting the fox in charge of the hen house? In other words, most of these testing labs, they, you know, let's be honest, their revenue is a function of the number of tests that they do. And so if we are going to try to justify not doing a particular test because it doesn't make sense, that means that the testing lab is not going to be making uh, as much money because they're not doing that test. And so, you know, the potential for conflict of interest here is, in my opinion, not something that we can overlook. So, look, at the end of the day, what it comes down to is one simple thing. Regardless of how much or how little we farm out to testing labs, or even to the FDA for that matter. The ultimate responsibility is on us, on the manufacturer. It's our product. The buck is supposed to stop with us. We should be responsible, obviously, for what we do, but we should also be responsible for what we don't do and why we don't do it. And, you know, let's put it this way, and you and I have talked about this before, John. I hear a lot of companies, they tell me they're afraid of the FDA, Well, companies should not fear the FDA. They should have a healthy respect for the FDA. But who should they really fear? The product liability attorneys. 
because those are the folks that can really impose uh, some significant damage when we don't do our jobs properly. And I would argue that that's perhaps not an entirely bad thing because that's part of the medical check and balance system. So I think as we wrap this up, you know, it'll be very interesting to, to see how this pilot program shapes out. I think, as I said at the beginning, like everything, there are advantages and disadvantages. I think overall, the advantages could outweigh the disadvantages here if we do it properly. And I think, as I suggested earlier, limiting this at least initially to class one and perhaps class two devices might be a way to kind of stick our toe in the water, so to speak, without diving in full full force. But at the end of the day, it can be beneficial to the company, but I can't emphasize this enough. If you in your company do not have enough technical expertise to understand completely what your testing lab is doing, and not just what they are doing, but what they are not doing, then I would suggest not to be self-serving, but you need to get somebody on your team, perhaps not as a full-time employee, but as a consultant who does have more experience and also is not part of that testing lab to avoid that conflict of interest so that you have somebody with a little less skin in the game. One of the things that I pride myself on when I work with companies, and I know you do this as well, John, is I will be very honest with them and I will share with them exactly what I think that they need to do and exactly what I think that they don't need to do and why from an engineering and a biology perspective. And, you know, we work with with the, the testing labs or we work with the FDA to make sure that eventually everybody is on the same page. We're, we're, we're pulling in the same direction. What do you think of that approach, John? Well, I, I like the approach. I mean, folks, what it really comes down to is this is your product. This is the, a device that you're planning to bring to market. And this is a device that is going to help people. And, you know, ultimately what, what we're obligated to do as medical device professionals is ensure that the products that we design, develop, manufacture, and sell are there to promote and ensure the safety and efficacy of, of what they intend to do. And standards are, are really good, good uh, things to, to embrace and understand because the purpose of a standard is really it's an accepted methodology behind, you know, a particular area of focus. You know, I, I did mention the, the, for example, the, the IEC 60601 electrical safety standard for medical devices. That's a great standard. Don't mishear what I said earlier. It's a great standard because it describes accepted methodologies for demonstrating safety. Mike's made references to a couple of times in this conversation about biocompatibility. A wonderful series of standards, ISO 10993, has been established as accepted methodologies for demonstrating biocompatibility. And, and again, these are all about safety. You know, So it does become a challenge, certainly for the medical device professional. You do have to understand the role that standards need to play in your device and in your technologies. And not that you need to become an expert, but you need to be knowledgeable enough to know what the intent behind each of these standards are and how they apply to your technology. It is a big effort, but it is a hat that you need to wear as those who are out there developing new technologies and new devices. I think, John, just to wrap this up, from my side anyway, there's two final points I'd like to leave with our audience today. Okay. The first is 
following standards or, or consensus existing methodologies is great if that makes sense. But if it doesn't make sense, we need to figure out another way to do it. And so one of the one of the concerns that I have about a potential program like this is who's going to be asking the question, who will, who will determine if the tests are appropriate and so on. Just remember, once upon a time, everybody thought the earth was flat. The standard was that the earth was flat. And to just even ask the question, gee, I'm not sure, maybe the earth is not flat, you would be considered a heretic. You could be put to death. So a lot of people think that following a standard is, uh, you know, it's the standard because it's it's the best or it's the right way to do something. In some cases it may be, but in other cases it may not. And we need to be asking those kinds of questions. Also, following a standard is just about a guarantee that you're working on a, new, a Me Too product. If you're doing something that is truly new or novel, and we've talked about this before, John, usually there are not standards to follow. And so what will be the, uh, how will a third party agency like this certify a test like that if we're coming up with the, the test, the standard ourselves? I don't think that's probably going to be possible. And I definitely want FDA to be reviewing that. So that's, an, that's another criteria that I think should be excluded from this particular program, especially if FDA is going to take a more hands-off approach to this. But the last quick comment that I'll make, or just a suggestion, this is a new program. This is a pilot program. To their credit, FDA is looking for comments from industry on this. I highly recommend for the engineers in the audience who have comments or concerns about this to share them with the agency either directly or a lot of times people do not want to, for the obvious reasons, share comments with direct uh, with the agency directly. Uh, so if you want to do it a little more anonymously, feel free to contact me or perhaps to John as well through Greenlight. And, you know, you can share your comments and we'd be happy to anonymously pass them on to the agency as well. Whether the comments are attributed to a particular source or not, I don't think it really matters. What's most important is, do you agree with the substance or do you have a, a specific concern or a suggestion on how to improve the program? That's what matters most. Yeah, those, those are great suggestions, Mike. And, you know, folks, uh, let me uh, echo what Mike's saying. You do have a voice in this. As he mentioned, this is a pilot program. It's just been announced just a few days ago. So, uh, you know, it's still a pretty fresh idea at this point. But, you know, the FDA does want your feedback and, you know, you know, reach out to Mike or myself if, if you'd like us to provide that feedback on your behalf or feel free to do so directly. And we'll provide links to the latest, greatest information on this pilot program that accompanies uh, um, this conversation that Mike and I have had. The, the last point that I want to emphasize to folks is standards are important. For sure. And as Mike mentioned, just because you're following a standard doesn't necessarily mean that you're state of the art. There might be something that's different that's not captured in the standard and so uh, that for your technology, especially if you're developing something unique and novel. So all this really becomes part of an important aspect as you're going through the design and development process. Understanding how standards fit in or, or whether they don't fit in is certainly something that you should be describing and defining as part of your design input requirements. And that's an early step in the design and development process. I would encourage you to spend the necessary time to make sure your design inputs 
are as comprehensive and appropriate as possible for your technology because it's certainly going to drive whether or not standards apply in, in later stages in your development efforts, what kind of testing is required, whether or not you're going to have to go to test labs or third-party resources, or whether or not this is something you do internally. So do keep that in mind. And if you want a little bit of help learning how to better manage your overall design control process, including how to capture design inputs and how these help drive your verification activities, feel free to reach out to us at greenlight.guru. We have a software platform that's designed specifically to help you manage that particular process. And, you know, just go to greenlight.guru, request uh, more information. We'd be happy to chat with you. I want to thank Mike Drews, President of Vascular Sciences, for joining me again on the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is John Spear. <laughs>